Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we'll be talking to our own contributing editor, Andrew Adonis, on the clown who became one of Britain's most dominant prime ministers. In our summer double issue, Andrew, a former cabinet minister and infrastructure chief, has produced a big amusing and ultimately fairly damning pen portrait of a PM that he knows reasonably well. And in explaining the Boris Johnson phenomenon, he finds nothing to be more important than his old school, which has a habit of raising occupants of number 10. So Andrew christens him the Prime Etonian. So Andrew, thanks for joining us. First of all, can we just have a word on your own dealings with him? How well do you know him? And when you've met him, how have you got on with him? I like Boris. I've always got on with him very well. We used to be near neighbours in Islington, literally ra- lived around the corner from each other. Uh, some of his kids went to the same school as my kids went to. And then um, serendipity striking when he was mayor of London, I was transport secretary. And the mayor of London is essentially London's transport secretary. And so we were dealing with each other pretty well every week, often several times a week. And there was an alignment of um, of forces. To to my great surprise, I found that uh, Boris wasn't much interested in, in policy. He did, though, want big things to happen. And uh, that, I think, is a very critical point to understanding Boris. He likes big things, Grand Projet, with his name on. You know, when we were uh, starting the Crossrail project, uh, which was alongside Boris bikes and the Boris buses, a big thing that he thought he'd have his name on in due course. I remember him saying to me when we were doing the start of work at Canary Wharf, pressing the button, you know, wearing our high-vis and all that, he said he started quoting Juvenile to me in Latin. And the English is... Bread and circuses, that's what will keep them happy. And that is, I think, what Boris sees politics as. He's the prime Etonian. He born to rule. He really believes he should be there. He's a celebrity who likes being in the moment. And that, I think, is the crucial point to understanding him, plus the Etonian who thinks that they have this right, almost God-given right to rule. You know, more than a third of all prime ministers since Robert Walpole three centuries ago, have been Etonians, and that's no accident. It goes with the territory. But in terms of what he actually wants to do, he is very much the Roman emperor. Big, big aqueducts, you know, viaducts, things like that with his name on, which I think he thinks will uh, give him uh, a name in immortality. It's a big thing he can go around saying he's doing. It has his name attached. 
it doesn't really involve being left-wing or right-wing. It's not a particular left or right-wing thing. It certainly doesn't particularly kill the rich, which is not in favour of doing at all. To spend money on big infrastructure, after all, most of the big infrastructure is used disproportionately by the rich anyway. They're the people who use the airports, the, the railways, and, um, and all that. And that meant that we had quite a close identity of interest, actually, to a degree which, as I look back on it, I now realise was this point of identity that uh, he was very keen to have big projects with his name on. I, the Labour government I was a part of saw infrastructure renewal as one of the big things it was doing, and so New Labour and Mayor Boris got on very well. But, of course, it was a different story when we moved on to Brexit. OK, so, um, so uh, in a sense, it's someone you, you, you approach with an open mind. The, the background is one that, that gives you that. Um, and uh, also a bit more context here. You, you're making a, a sort of big-picture study of um, political leadership, which I know you're going to edit into a book, like a series of essays, mostly in prospects, some of them elsewhere. Um, and, uh, like, you know, you're interested in what it is that makes someone uh, a dominant leader. In the scale of things in Britain and um, around the world, just how dominant a leader is this, is this one? He's been very, very lucky, Boris, in that his rivals have been very weak. Um, I mean, to have an election against Jeremy Corbyn is almost uh, God-given luck, isn't it? I mean, on the scale of things. Pretty well any Tory could have beaten Jeremy Corbyn. And indeed, Theresa May, who, you know, somebody famously said was a personality cult around a non-personality. Even she, remember, did succeed. Even though she imploded in the 2017 election, she still succeeded in defeating Jeremy Corbyn. So he's been lucky, but also he's made his own luck. He is an absolutely ruthless political operator. The way he destroyed his fellow Etonian, David Cameron, is one, you know, straight out of Shakespeare and, and all that, isn't it? I mean, it's Macbeth meets Julius Caesar in a, in a, in a modern political context. Uh, so there's that. Uh, but there's also the fact that he's a celebrity, and that gave him a big head start anyway. That in my experience of modern British politics, there have only been two real celebrities, Tony Blair and Boris Johnson. They're the only two people I've been with, and I've, you know, one way or another seen most of them since uh, Thatcher. The only two people who literally crowds flock around. Thatcher had it a bit uh, from the Falklands on with, but even she didn't have celebrity really apart from people who adored her, whereas, as I know from going on, you know, trips on cycle superhighways with Boris, every time he stopped on the bike, all of the mobile phones would come out, People would start uh, cheering, taking photos, doing all that kind of stuff. And as I say, the only other person I've seen that for is Tony Blair. So the combination of ruthlessness, celebrity and a bit of luck in his choice of rivals, all three of those help explain why he's been so dominant. And he is phenomenally dominant. I mean, he's now two years into his, uh, his premiership and he's 10, 15 points ahead in the polls. He's, uh, I don't think that anybody much doubts if there was an election held now at this precise moment, uh, he would win it. He's got an ascendancy, which in many ways is akin to Blair... Uh, before Iraq and Thatcher after the Falklands. And who would have thought that, you know, in two, three years ago before he became Prime Minister? So suddenly, um, I've noticed this week, it could be board lobby, lobby correspondence in, in the summer holidays, but, um, 
you know, there is a bit of talk about him being one slip away from disaster. You know, is Dominic Raab and Boris Johnson looking very humiliated with the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan? If there's another wobble on COVID after everything's meant to be irreversible. Um, I mean, you do start your essay by saying um, all his corners are tight. But are you buying this idea that he could be one slip away from really serious trouble? Well, you never know whether he could be one slip away from it in his personal life. You know, I was absolutely amazed when writing my profile of Boris and getting into a lot of the history of his uh, youth, which I didn't know, how close he repeatedly came to complete catastrophe and narrowly survived. I mean, this is a guy who is recorded as uh, uh, discussing with his Etonian friend, Darius Guppy, how to beat up, seriously beat up, I mean, do serious damage to, you know, they're talking about not, not bumping him off, but, but, you know, breaking some ribs and stuff like this. Um, is recorded doing it, and he gets off. You know, so it's it's lucky escape by lucky escape. Part of the reason he definitely gets away with it, in my view, is because he's an Etonian. Uh, he does lead a slightly charmed life. You know, um, Max Hastings, Sir Max Hastings, who spends his time abusing Boris at the moment, he was the editor of the Daily Telegraph, who not only gave Boris his job, but made him Brussels correspondent, which made his name, turned him into a celebrity, and who was sent the tape, the tape of the Darius Guppy conversation about beating up the journalist. He calls Boris in. Boris gives him a lot of his, um, his charm about not really meaning it. It, wasn't, it, never, it was never going to happen and all that. Well, we'd never know whether it was going to happen because, of course, once uh, the tape was out, it obviously wasn't going to happen after that. And amazingly, he wasn't sacked. And why wasn't he sacked? I think it's a bit of the Etonian charm and respect that, uh, that Max Hastings, who now I think bitterly regrets it, but certainly did have then for this brilliant young man who came with such golden uh, reputation and all of that. So he's able to get away with stuff that virtually no one else would get away with. And because the public see him as a celebrity, I don't think he's subject to the usual rules about, you know, cock up. It doesn't matter how badly he cocks up. I don't think a policy cock up would probably lead to him going. I mean, you can't be sure of something really catastrophic, maybe. But look at COVID. I mean, it's been pretty catastrophic and he's survived that and he's still 10 points ahead in the polls. I think it would have to be something really just totally unacceptable privately. But if you look at the things he's got away with, you know, this is a guy who we don't even know how many children he's got. Literally, no one knows because no one knows how many of those that he's had have been properly declared. So it would have to be something really extreme, I think, probably allied to a piece of bad luck in terms of him being unpopular because of something that's happened in his public life to get rid of him. So he could go, you know, it could be that by the time people start listening to this in a few days' time, he's gone. But I reckon there's a very good chance in five, six, seven years' time, Boris is still going to be there. Blimey. Well, a lot of it, um, uh, listening to you so far already, does come down to class. Now, it's not quite the story of aristocracy, is it? You you talked about him as a, um, a scholarship boy rather than an actual aristocrat and to use the phrase of fellow Etonian George Orwell he's kind of lower upper middle class is what George Orwell writes in the road to Wigan Pier about him um self so he's not born to be a Bertie Worcester character but he kind of becomes one is that fair well I think it's complicated like so much of class uh, in England because though it's true that in terms of the wealth of his family it wasn't phenomenal he was sort of reasonably well off but not phenomenal you know, his mum is quite well connected 
uh, there's a, a you know a knight and a baronet on that side of the family. His dad had been to Sherborne, a, a lesser public school, not huge amounts of money. He was a Eurocrat and so on. Nonetheless, there were two elements of Boris's background that are vitally important to understand. He has continental aristocratic connections of some real importance in the self-image of his family. His great-grandfather was the last Sultan of Turkey's interior minister who was executed in uh, the, the coup-stroke revolution that leads to Ataturk taking over in the 1920s. He is a, a super well-connected Turkish aristocrat in a, of, a, of really serious disposition, which, by the way, accounts for the genes for the blonde hair. And it's very clear to me that his grandfather and uh, his father have a very aristocratic view of the family. What Stanley sees himself as doing with this family is putting it back on the map in England, which internationally it had held historically and he thought it deserved, which is part of the reason why he was so desperate that his sons should go to Eton and why he did put them into the prep school, Ashdown House, which was the Eton feeder school, and then they went on to get the scholarships at Eton. This was carefully planned and it does have have a sort of sense of, of aristocratic downward mobility with a determination to get back up again about it. So it's a complicated class background, but you cannot understand Boris Johnson and his family, you know, his dad, his grandfather, indeed his mum as well, without seeing class and a strong strand of upper class in it. And that's a big, big part of Boris's makeup, and particularly this right to rule. He talks about his great grandfather quite a lot, actually, if you read his interviews about the Turks and the, and the last sultan and all of that, he really does see this as part of his family makeup. It is funny. I mean, I remember him being on um, any questions before he was prominent, and they asked him, you know, what do you think about Europe? And he said, well, I think about Europe, you know, as, as, as someone who's part Turkish, is that Turkey should be allowed to join. It's exactly right. I'm, I'm a Greek Cypriot. So I feel this quite strongly, actually. This, the present government, and this is a very micro bit of policy, the present government is very pro-Turkish. And indeed, in Cyprus, which is one of the, the trickiest of Britain's colonial legacies, where, where Britain's position has always been that, uh, that the Turkish hunter in the, in the 1970s was responsible for the invasion of Turkey and that the right thing to do is for the island to be reunited. In fact, Dominic Rabb and Boris have been toying with and, and in public floating the idea of a partition of Cyprus, partitioned between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots. And I've no doubt whatsoever that that is because of Boris's Turkish ancestry and his belief in, in a greater Turkey. So this thing really does live on and crucially important for the biographer and understanding this extraordinary extrovert, you know, quasi-aristocratic internationalist Boris Johnson, the Turkish ancestry is, is really important to understanding him. And such an irony with the way the Leave campaign played the, um, the coming hordes from Turkey when, when it joined. Oh, there's irony in irony, because this is a guy who also loved Brussels. When he was there, he didn't sort of go there thinking this is an awful place and, you know, have got to speak French and all of that. No, he gloried in it. Uh, and he played both sides. What he did was he played the, the Eurocrat, because his dad was a Eurocrat. 
you know, a, a real Europhile. The great hero of my political life is Roy Jenkins. If you read Roy Jenkins' diaries, there are loads of references to Stanley, who was one of the first people to really get onto the environment as an issue and climate change. So this is not a sort of populist, anti-European, Farageist-type background that he comes from. On the contrary, it's a born-to-rule Etonian who uses the European issue as a way of first gaining prominence, you know, the bent bananas, the standardised condoms, all of that and then uses it very cynically as an issue to get rid of Cameron, expecting at the time, of course, that Brexit would bomb in the referendum. This was a means of taking over the Conservative Party. It wasn't necessarily a policy for the country. Remember, this is the same Boris who wrote two articles for the Daily Telegraph, the one for leaving and the one for staying in. And my last one-to-one -one conversation with Boris that I rec recount in the profile is just after he'd left the Chamber of the House of Commons when Cameron announced the terms that he'd negotiated with Merkel and uh, the date of the referendum. And, you know, there was Boris ruffling his hair saying, what the fuck am I going to do? Do I back this or not back this? And when I said to him, well, you should do the proper Churchillian thing, which is that Britain should be leading Europe, and we need somebody like you on the Tory side to be leading it, he said, no, I can't do that, because that means Cameron leading. That, and that goes to the heart of why Boris did this big Brexit thing. It's not because he believed in Brexit. He believed in Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, and it was the way he saw to taking over the country. And, you know, it happened, and that's why we've got the Prime Etonian. <laughs> so um, we'll drill down into the school in a second, but first of all, just on this, uh, you know, this kind of class, kind of caricature, Bertie Worcester, you call it, in, in, in the piece thing, why is it that that sort of seems to work in places like Hartlepool? I mean, is it just a sort of archetype that's there and that we kind of defer to because we're used to doing what people like that tell us? Well, he became the anti-status quo leader in those areas. Brexit, of course, was the, was the anti-status quo option in the referendum. And because, of course, in many of these communities, it's been a really terrible 10, 20 years. And let's be, let's be frank, you know, even the last Labour government, of which I was a part, we did, a, uh, I think, a very good job on the public services in the, in, in the areas of deindustrialization in the Midlands and the North, but not such a good job on the private sector and getting uh, new private sector jobs in these areas. And that's the reason why there's been depopulation in many of these areas, real problems about prospects for young people and so on. Well, Boris rode the wave of that. He, he, he dominated the, the anti-establishment issue of 2016, which was Brexit, and, the, and what became, ironically, the anti-establishment party in those places as well, which was the Tory party, and his celebrity gave him an edge, particularly over Corbyn, because the one thing that you and I, who know a thing or two about Labour politics, uh, we know, Tom, is that you turn up in places like... Uh, uh, Sunderland and Newcastle and Liverpool and places like that and, and this London Marxist Jeremy Corbyn, he absolutely bombs, you give them a choice between the London Marxist, you know, going on about Putin and sending uh, test samples back to Moscow, you know, after the poisoning in Salisbury, and you offer them the choice of that or Boris Johnson, and I'm afraid you don't need to know much about the English working class to know that in most of these places they go for Boris over Corbyn Okay, so let's drill into the school because you, you've made that the theme with this idea of the, the um, Prime Etonian. I mean, it produces a lot of Prime Ministers. Are you sure it's not just a very good school? Well, it's very well-connected school. I mean, it is a school that is built into, baked into, the English elite 
and the Conservative Party in a way that no other school is. You gave me that marvellous fact, didn't you, Tom, that if every school had one leader in turn, then Eton would get one about, what was it, every 2,000 years, I think it was. It was some sort of great figure like this, whereas there have been 55 prime ministers and Eton has had more than a third of them. So there is clearly something going on. And it is true that the school has become a very meritocratic institution. That's absolutely true. It gets loads of A's, A-stars and all of that. That didn't used to be the case, though. If you go back 50 years, you know, to the time when Alec Douglas Hume, Harold Macmillan, Anthony Eden, the Prime Ministers, the Etonian Prime Ministers of the 1950s and 60s were going through the school, it was essentially a comprehensive school for the aristocracy. But because the aristocracy dominated the Conservative Party, you know, all the way through until the 1960s, that was enough. That meant that these people became the leaders and then took over the country. Well, once the grammar school boys, the Howard Wilsons, the Roy Jenkins, the Dennis Healy's came on the scene and proved very good at winning elections because they also found a route through to the English middle class, once that started, Eton realised it needed to change. And what happened under this guy, Eric Anderson, who features very large in my profile of Boris Johnson and who very, very tellingly was also Tony Blair's uh, headmaster at school, is Eton changed from being a, 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 a comprehensive for the aristocracy into being a grammar school for the aristocracy. It started delivering the goods in terms of exam results, as well as having the fees, which are now 49,000 quid a year. 49,000 quid a year. So, you know, this is plutocracy meets meritocracy. And that, unfortunately, unfortunately, particularly, I think, with the demise of the grammar schools in the 1960s and 70s, is what enabled this new generation of Etonian Tories, the Camerons, uh, the Borises, as a class to come through. And I think now, it's only now starting to be challenged as the best state schools are taking a lead again and starting to do well in admissions to Oxford and Cambridge. A lot of these new academies, which you may have seen in the news in the over the A-level results, are, are getting more people into Oxford and Cambridge even than Eton. But it's taken a generation after the rise of this new breed of meritocratic Etonians, the, the, the Camerons and the Johnsons. It's taking a generation before a new non-Tory class is coming through with similar academic credentials. I think in due course they'll give these Etonians a run for their money. But let's be clear, the Conservative Party is going to be dominated by this lot uh, for the foreseeable future. And if you ask me, is this the last Etonian Prime Minister, I would be prepared to wager a very large sum that there are going to be a string more to come. I mean, one thing I thought was interesting in the piece is you bring out the fact that, yes, you know, like with Cameron and uh, Johnson, these people have kind of um, moved uh, very much centre stage. But you only just need to, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party, d dig a bit below the very top and you find lots of these um, Etonian MPs are always there, 10% of all the uh, Tory MPs under, um, say, John Major. But even more than that, you know, we've got, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Also, the, the last person to come into the Cabinet, Kwasi Kwarteng, another Etonian. You know, they, 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 every time you think you might have seen the last of them, you know, that surely the next generation coming up aren't, it's not true. They're still there. And it looks to me as if it's perfectly possible that the, the contest for the next leadership of the Conservative Party could be between an Etonian like Kwasi Kwarteng and there are others there. And, you know, guess where we're going for diversity? Rishi Sunak, Winchester. I mean, this is the modern Conservative Party. Just as when Cameron was in charge, you know, the diversity was George Osborne, St Paul's.
So I'm afraid this... Yeah, and, well, George Osborne's chief economic advisor, Rupert Harrison... Was, was an Italian. And chief yeah. of staff of David Cameron, uh, Ed Llewellyn, was Italian yeah, as well. Used, and, they, and, of course, now the yeah, prince I mean, It's almost as if, you know, they ran the country from the Ritz or something, isn't it? I'm afraid there's a, a, a very strong pedigree there, and it's going to be there for the foreseeable future. But you do think, you do feel... Because, you know, I'm sure you don't um, uh, like this trait about Britain that people are sort of drawn from such a small cast, but you, you think that possibly we're seeing stuff now in terms of like who's getting into Oxford and Cambridge that might change it over 20 years or so? Well, I think if I can sort of uh, be maybe um, a bit too optimistic about it, uh, Labour governments do make a difference. And the last Labour government which invested big time in state schools and recreated a whole new generation of um, what I think of as modern grammar schools. These are schools which are really, really good, the academies, at doing academic excellence whilst being non-selective, which is where I think, you know, is the best of uh, of, of the modern educational philosophy, they are now really surging in terms of admissions to Oxford and Cambridge. And so I think that you've now got the makings, not of an elite that I think will replace the Etonians, but of one that can fight maybe even on a basis of equality with it, which is roughly what we had without quite realising it at the time in the 60s and 70s. You still had an Etonian-dominated Conservative Party, Mostly, even under Thatcher, who, of course, was a grammar school girl, you know, uh, 61, 61 of her ministers were Etonians. And that's, you know, before you get to the rest of the public schools. But the grammar school boys dominated the Labour Party, and there were quite a few of them, actually, inside the Conservatives, too. And what I hope, being optimistic, but it's a sign of how class-ridden this country still is, that this is the optimistic scenario, is that we might now be breeding an elite which at least has an equality of arms with the Etonians. And that will be a big improvement and what we've seen in the last 15 years. So what we're really saying, I think, is that Boris Johnson's the, the kind of phenomenon that he is because he combines this kind of elite Freemasonry, I think you call it, uh, that comes with the schooling with, um, you know, obviously a certain amount of ability and charisma, but, but, but perhaps even more important, an absolutely singular fixation on, uh, like, the importance, the great glory of Boris Johnson above all else. He's um, also, let me, let me just add about Boris, he's a much more skillful politician than people think. He is a celebrity, he's turning, you know, P.G. Woodhouse, this character, uh, into a real celebrity status. But this is a guy who first tried to get elected seriously as an MEP, actually, like his dad, at the age of 29, who first stood to be an MP at 32. It's a big mistake, which even many people who know him quite well, it's a big mistake that they make to think that this is a celebrity-stroke journalist who decided to go into politics. That's not my reading of it at all. This was a guy who always wanted to run the country, who saw that as the way he could get this ultimate self-expression was to rule. And becoming a journalist and a celebrity was a means to ruling. It wasn't the other way around. So, so you know, absolute ambition, but uh, ambition uh, that can be very flexible about everything apart from, apart from the end goal. I mean, it does sound a fairly formidable um, combination. Uh, you've already said you think he might last quite a long time. But given that flexibility, what, if any, legacy do you think there'll be? I'm sure there'll be some kind of Boris Bridge or whatever, you know, some bits of infrastructure kicking around. But um, if he doesn't have a kind of real ethos or ideology beyond that, what kind of um, hallmark do you think he'll leave on the Conservative Party? Do you think he will like leave a real stamp on it like Thatcher did? Or do you think he might be someone who's 
kind of overbearing and all important when he's here, but kind of almost vanishes without trace once he's not here. Well, I'm afraid he's destined to have one of the biggest legacies of any prime minister because of Brexit. You know, this is a guy who redefined English nationalism uh, into being profoundly anti-European, which it hadn't been for most of the period since the Second World War. And we did leave the European Union, which is one of the biggest public policy acts in the history of this country. So one of the great ironies of Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister who probably believes less than any modern Prime Minister will leave a bigger imprint on the country than almost any of them. And if he stopped being Prime Minister tomorrow, that legacy would still be there. And that's the tragedy, really, is that the means to power, which in my view, and I think probably most prospect listeners view was a, a terrible thing for the country which was wrenching us out of our own continent in many ways with Brexit something he didn't even really believe in is destined to become his legacy and progressive people in politics I think they're going to spend the ne- most of the next generation basically trying to undo that legacy either wholly or in part. Andrew thank you for all your insight and for sticking your, your, your neck out there on all those big questions um, and thanks to all of you for joining us and listening this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.